Well, we continue in our uh, focusing on the family series, and today it's uh, Nurturing a Biblical Man, Part 2. Uh, the next two Sundays we'll be dealing with Nurturing a Biblical Woman. So today we turn to Matthew 4 and also Hebrews 11. And I'll read these passages for us, Matthew 4, uh, verses 1 through 10. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting forty days and forty nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And then Hebrews 11, verses 23 through 28. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood, so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. Eleanor Roosevelt said, One's philosophy is not best expressed in words. It is expressed in the choices one makes. And the choices we make are ultimately our responsibility. Now obviously she had a firm grasp of the teaching of Scripture. And I want all of us to pay attention to her words because they apply to all of us, but especially our young people need to think about them as you begin to build and shape your lives in the days to come. And the truth of these words can be seen in both the actions of Jesus and Moses in these texts before us this morning. But first, for the benefit of those who were not here last week, 
in the first part of nurturing a biblical man. We took a look at the fall of mankind in Genesis 3 and then followed that with Romans 5 where Paul is talking about the first Adam and the second Adam, Jesus Christ, and comparing and contrasting the two. And we talked about the differences between Adam and Jesus. And I referenced a book entitled Raising a Modern Day Night by Robert Lewis. And the four differences that he talks about in his book between Adam and Jesus that help answer the question, what is a man? And in his book, he talks about those differences in terms of what he calls manhood principles. And we dealt with his first two principles last week. And those are, a real man rejects passivity and a real man accepts responsibility. And of course, if you missed that, you can always listen to it on our website or if we have one of those rare occasions when our streaming is not so well, I uh, type my sermons typically on my computer and I have a sermon file and I can email it to you or mail you a hard copy, either one. Now with those first two principles in mind, a real man rejects passivity and a real man accepts responsibility. We move on in this sermon today to cover his final two manhood principles. And his third is that a real man leads courageously. In our first sermon in this series, we were talking about the biblical pictures of husbands and wives. And we made the point from Ephesians 5 that since the husband is the head of the wife, as Jesus is head of the church, and since Jesus' overall attitude was that of a servant, as in Philippians 2, that we husbands have been called to be servant leaders. And there are right ways to lead and wrong ways to lead as we seek to serve those around us. And in the temptation story here in Matthew 4, Jesus shows us the right way to lead and the attitude for we men to exhibit as we seek to lead. But before we get to that, let's at least set the stage for what's taking place in this text. As is often the case, there's more going on in this passage than a surface reading might simply bring to mind. In verse 1 we read, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now when we hear that word tempt, we usually think of that as someone who's trying to persuade us to do something wrong. Like our best friend might say, go on and eat that big piece of chocolate cake. That's what we usually think of. But as one scholar put it, this word in the Greek means to test far more than it means to tempt in our sense of the word. I mean, even if we didn't know what the Greek language says there, obviously the Holy Spirit isn't trying to persuade Jesus to do something wrong so we can see that it really is a test. We also have to remember that this testing takes place in the wilderness. Now, who else was tested in the wilderness? 
It was the children of Israel. As we can read in Deuteronomy 8, Moses says, You shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, testing you to know what was in your heart. Now Israel was in the wilderness 40 years. Jesus was in the wilderness just 40 days. But we're supposed to pick up on that symbolism and see what's taking place. We should see that Jesus actually triumphs over the temptations to which Israel yielded in the desert. Jesus didn't have to have bread. The Israelites complained that they had nothing to eat. They couldn't practice the patience to see that God would meet their needs. In the second test, the devil quotes Psalm 91, but uses it in a twisted way because if you read Psalm 91, the psalmist is calling us to trust in God. And Satan is basically saying, you need to see if God is faithful and will save you. In other words, put God to the test since he's testing you. That's what Satan was saying to Jesus. Jesus refuses, quoting Deuteronomy 6, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And Matthew cuts him off right there. And maybe that's all Jesus said. But if you go back to Deuteronomy 6 and you read that verse, this is what it says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you did at Massa. You may recall that had to do with God providing water for his people in the desert. Then with the third test, the devil says he wants to give all the kingdoms of the world to Jesus, which, remember, Jesus will ultimately have. But they could be gained in an easy way. All Jesus has to do is bow down and worship Satan. In other words, they can be obtained by an easy way, but through the wrong means. Quoting Deuteronomy 6, Jesus says, You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve. You see what Jesus is saying? He's teaching us that the end does not justify the means. Always remember that. The end does not justify the means. Here it is in Scripture, and yet so many around us, and even at times people who claim to be in the church, believe that this is true, that the end does justify the means. And that's why you have people who call themselves Christians bombing abortion centers. The end does not justify the means. That's what Jesus is telling us right here in this text. As one commentator put it, we can summarize Jesus' example like this. Resist the devil in the power of the Spirit through the guidance of the Word to accomplish God's will. That's what Jesus is doing. That's how he's leading. That's how he's living. You see, temptations typically involve a, a twisting of something 
that is real. We saw that last week in Genesis 3 where the serpent twisted what God had said to Adam. That's why the truth of God's Word will always get us out of trouble when we are about to be in trouble. Jesus uses God's truth to guide His own heart and His own understanding of reality in this world, and we are to do the same thing. But one thing Jesus did before He quoted Scripture with His final test is that He said to the devil, Be gone, Satan. Now, you know, Jesus gives all kinds of commands in Scripture, but this is the very first one where he tells Satan to be gone. And he gives it with courage and conviction. This is a command of leadership from a real man. He has to be able to lead his own heart in the right way before he can lead others, and he's supremely successful. Now, Jesus' temptations were pretty much like tests that you and I have today. And he gives us a wonderful example to follow. We know that in his deity, Jesus could not be tempted, as James 1.13 teaches. But at the same time, in his humanity, Hebrews 4 tells us he's been tempted as we are in every respect, yet without sin. And that's why he's such a courageous leader, because of his ability to resist the easy way out, relying not on himself but on the power of the Spirit, again through the truth of the Word, to accomplish God's will. As Robert Lewis puts it in his book, the courage to lead with truth rather than to surrender to feelings always separates the men from the boys to lead with truth rather than surrender to feelings now we could spend more time on this but we need to move on because we've got one more manhood principle to deal with and that is a real man expects the greater reward we know that's true in Jesus life as Hebrews 12 puts it, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. But this same writer in the book of Hebrews also gives us a good example with the life of Moses in his 11th chapter where we have that roll call of all those who lived by faith. As we read a few moments ago, Moses considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt for he was looking to the reward and that word considered in the text means to lead to go before to think he considered Moses did he thought about it he thought about his future he thought about consequences. He looked down the road, way down the road, to where his decision this day would take him. You know, looking ahead is a safe driving practice 
I learned that because I rode motorcycles for so long. If you ride a motorcycle, you've got to look ahead to stay alive. And, you know, you see a, a red light that's red, 200 yards in ahead, you just go and let off the, the gas. I preach this at my house a lot. I don't know if it's listened to or not, but I preach it. But, you know, uh, that's also a, a wise life practice to look ahead. Talking about a leadership seminar he once attended, Chuck Swindoll said that one thing really stayed with him. For the speaker said, there are two things that are the most difficult to get people to do. And those are to think and then to do things in the proper order of importance. Moses took the time to think. And then he did things in the order of their importance. Sometime when you're reading through Hebrews 11, take and underline or mark every single verb in that chapter. And then you'll see that faith involves confident action and courageous choices. And like us, you know, every day, Moses was faced with choices. And he had some very hard decisions to make, especially as he became a grown man. Was he going to become a Hebrew slave or was he going to stay on the side of the Egyptians? You see, if he said yes to one, he would have to say no to the other. You and I, we like yes. And the world likes yes. But to say no is typically unpopular. Faith demands a yes, usually, that requires a no at the same time. And in case I'm being too cryptic, let me give you an example. Many months ago, a young couple was visiting here in worship. They visited for three or four weeks, and then they wanted to come see me in my office, and they said, talk about membership. They told me how they were Christians. And I was impressed with the fact that they wanted to come see me and that they initiated. The more we talked, I came to find out that they wanted to be married within a few months. And then I asked a question that I knew that I had to ask in this day and time. I didn't want to ask the question, but I had to ask it. Are you living under the same roof? Yes. In separate bedrooms? No. I showed them some pertinent passages regarding their present living arrangements like we find in 1 Corinthians 6 and Galatians 5. But I couldn't persuade them to see that to say yes to marriage in God's sight meant saying no to some other things like living together before they were married. I tried to offer them alternatives and I told them I'd help them through the process. But they couldn't catch the importance of doing things in their proper order. I said to them, you want your marriage to be blessed by God, don't you? Deuteronomy 28 tells us that God blesses obedience. 
But at the same time, Deuteronomy 28 teaches us that God curses disobedience. You need to begin your marriage, I told them, from a stance of obedience and not disobedience. But they weren't willing. Now you could say, well, Barry, Jesus took people where they were. Yes, he did. But he also said at the same time, go and sin no more. You know, Paul speaks to this in Romans 6. Where he talks about, are we to, to continue in sin so that grace can abound? By no means, he says. As Robert Lewis puts it in his book, Every young man needs a view of life that begins with this fundamental proposition. True satisfaction in life is directly proportionate to one's obedience to God. True satisfaction in life is directly proportionate to one's obedience to God. And he goes on to say, in this context, moral boundaries take on a whole new perspective. They become benefits, not burdens. Meeting with that couple, I so understood the verse that we see in Mark 10, where Jesus, looking on what we normally refer to as the rich young ruler, Mark tells us Jesus, looking on him, loved him. I loved that young couple. They were bright, attractive, showed initiative. They were easy to talk with. They could have made a great addition to this church. But you know, if you remember that story about the rich young ruler, we're told he walked away from Jesus sorrowful because he had great possessions. He couldn't say, no to his possessions in order to say yes to Jesus. Look at what Moses was willing to give up. The sheer power involved in being a prince of Egypt. That was the wealthiest uh, empire in the world at that day and time. And all of it was at Moses' fingertips. And yet he was willing to give up all of that. He turned his back on power, pleasures, and the wealth of Egypt. And he was able to do all of this by faith. And what did faith say to him? It proclaimed the truth of a greater reward. For as Paul tells us in Romans 8, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. Moses is just like Paul, you see. He had an eternal perspective. And that's what the gift of faith provides for you and me as well. And every man needs to have this kind of perspective if he's going to truly succeed. And every Christian needs this perspective as well because without faith it's impossible to please God, Hebrews 11 tells us. As one writer put it, 
a major point of Hebrews 11 is that God's followers look beyond the immediate to grasp the significance of the ultimate. We look beyond the immediate to grasp the significance of the ultimate. Faith involves believing that God rewards those who earnestly seek Him. It's the good news of the gospel. Believe it and live the abundant life that's yours to live in Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.